0: Good morning, friends. Um, I'm going to continue my series today from uh, the Gospel of Mark. I'm actually recording this message in Monticello, Arkansas, on my way to Baton Rouge, where tomorrow morning I'll be teaching at Hunt Correctional. My title for today's message is The Man from the Tombs. It's in Mark chapter 5. It's uh, 17 verses. This is a story about a man uh, with a legion of demons. It's one of those unforgettable biblical encounters that many of us first heard about as kids in Sunday school. I should say right up front that I'm not going to preach every sermon that could be preached from this passage. I mean, there's a great deal here that we're just going to leave basically untouched. And there are some questions raised by the text that I will only touch on very briefly, and some I'm just not going to touch on at all. But the summary of the story goes like this. When Jesus and his disciples came to the mostly Gentile region of the Gerizim, they are met by a man whose life had been destroyed by demonic infestation. The demons and the man recognize Jesus. The man bows before him, and after the man confesses, or I should say the demons confess, depending upon how you look at it, that there are many demons within him, Jesus casts out the demons and sends them into a nearby herd of 2,000 pigs. Well, the pigs promptly rush off a cliff into the Sea of Galilee and drown, and when the townspeople learn what's happened, they ask Jesus to leave. Now, Jesus agrees, but not before refusing a request by the formerly demonized man to go with him. The man is told to go home and tell his family and friends what Jesus has done for him. In this he does, word spreads, everyone who hears what happens is utterly amazed. Suffice to say, almost everything in this story is a little bit bizarre. I mean, a man comes to Jesus in a shocking condition. Jesus agrees to a surprising cure. The townspeople come to Jesus with a strange request, and Jesus gives the man an unexpected answer. There are three worlds meet here in this strange story, the underworld of evil spirits, the visible world of human experience, and the upper world of divine control. And evidently, this encounter made quite an impression on the disciples because it's found in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The disciples never forgot how Jesus liberated a man infested with demons. Now, before we look at the details of this text, an underlying issue deserves our attention. In reading this story, some people downplay the reality of the demonic, calling it symbolic of the evil in the world today. And others see it as an ancient way of saying that this man had a severe mental illness. But I don't think we should say this. I mean, demon possession was real to this man, it was real to Jesus. So it's no, incompl- it's no compliment to our so-called enlightened age if in our thinking we have gone beyond the Bible. My purpose is not to argue this point. I simply submit to you that this story, however bizarre it may seem, is presented as sober reality, and this is how we should take it. To say that this man was insane or mentally ill completely misses the point and evacu- evacuates the story of its primary meaning. This is not a story about Jesus curing mental illness. It's a story about Jesus defeating the demons. Now from personal witness teaching overseas, and I can testify that people in Asia and Africa read this story and nod their heads. People in Haiti and Jamaica know what this is all about. What seems alien to us is commonplace and very believable to them. Jesus has come to the region of the Garazenes on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and this is Gentile territory, the region we call the Decapolis or Ten Cities. He has come to rest and seek relief from the crowds following him on the way, on the other side of the lake. Now, if you ever tour the Holy Land, your guide would probably show you the place on the eastern side of the sea where there's a limestone cliff and some old tombs not far away. And they would tell you that, obviously, this is the location of this amazing miracle. I don't know whether that's true or not, but, well, listen to your tour guide. A study of the text reveals four different prayers made to Jesus. The demons make the first two, the townspeople make the third, and the liberated man makes the fourth. So we're going to group the details of this story around these four prayers. Prayer number one, do not torture me. The background is in verses one to five where it reads, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, we don't know how this unfortunate man came to be infested with demons. The Bible doesn't say, and it's useless to speculate. It's sometimes said that demon possession is the result of certain kinds of sinful activity, and that may be true, but the Bible never presents demon possession as the result of a particular sin or set of sins. What we can say for certain is that demons are spirit beings created by God to serve him. They were originally good angels who followed Lucifer, Satan, in his rebellion against God. They are powerful spirits, beings who now serve Satan and his evil purposes on this earth. Their purpose is entirely negative. When they infested this poor man, they drove him from society, gave him incredible physical power, and caused him great personal torment. People tried to chain him, shackle him uh, for their own safety, but somehow he just broke and roamed free. They put him under guard, but the guards couldn't restrain him. The demons caused the man to act in increasingly bizarre ways, so he ended up living in the tombs. He was wild, dangerous, probably naked, tormented, isolated, and violent. I mean, no one could help him. He couldn't help himself, and he'd been that way for a long time. Humanly speaking, we might say he was a hopeless case. This is the most severe case of demon possession in the entire Bible. It was extreme then and now, and very rare then and now. To be precise, we should speak of this man as being demonized. He had in his person the actual presence of evil forces. And this is different from an evil nature or an evil disposition. Luke's version tells us he was driven by demons. His personality was somehow under demonic control. And evidently the attacks would come and go when he was under that control. He acted in an irrational and dangerous manner. The most shocking fact, and one worth noting about it, is that the demons knew who Jesus was. There's no debate here about the real Jesus. The demons called him by his divine name, Son of the Most High God. When the man came to Jesus, he fell down because even the demons believe. That's from James 2, chapter 2, 19, and they trembled before God. So he knows Jesus' name. He knows who Jesus really is, Son of the Most High God, and he knows what Jesus can do, and that's to torture him eternally. Demons are not atheists. They fear Jesus even though they don't worship him. And why did the demon ask Jesus not to torture him? Because they knew Jesus could forever send them into the pit of torment called the abyss. And he could do that forever. So he asked Jesus not to send him and his accomplices there prematurely. Now here's prayer number two, and that's send us to the pigs. So here's one of the most controversial parts of the story in verses 8 to 13. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Now, when Jesus commands the evil spirits to come out, they know they must eventually obey him. What happens next is a kind of a round of negotiations. First, Jesus asks the demon who speaks through the man, what's your name? Now, this is more than just a simple request for identification. It means something like, do you know who you are? The man or the demon speaking through him, it's difficult to make a proper distinction here. It says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Evidently, one demon answers on behalf of all the evil spirits within And there's the change from the singular, my name is, to the plural for we are. Now, the word legion refers to a Roman military unit of 6,000 soldiers. So is this guy saying that there's 6,000 demons inside of him? Well, not necessarily. He merely says that there are many spirits at work in him. In fact, he's saying, I'm so full of demons, I don't know who I am. An invading army has taken over his personality, and that's all this man knows. How did he end up with thousands of demons? Well, we don't know. The text doesn't say, and it evidently doesn't matter for our understanding of the story. When the demons realize that they're about to be cast out, they beg not to be sent out of the region. Perhaps this is part of the the Decapolis was fertile soil for their activity. Maybe it was a hotbed of pagan religious practices. The Greek emphasizes that they repeatedly begged Jesus not to send them elsewhere. Since there was a herd of 2,000 pigs nearby, the demons asked to be sent into them. Now, I know a lot of questions arise at this point, like whose pigs are they? Well, we know the pigs were considered unclean under the Old Testament law. If a Jewish farmer owned the pigs, he was in direct violation of the law. But since this was mostly Gentile territory, it seems more likely that they were owned by Gentile farmers. And if so, he wouldn't be subject to the Old Testament law. Well, the second question often asked is how the demons can enter animals. And although much has been written on this, it's clearly speculative. <clears throat> we simply don't have enough information of the Bible to answer this question. We know that it happened one time during Jesus' ministry, and that's the only clear record we have in the Bible of something like this. But note that the demons must ask permission of Jesus before they can enter the pigs. So don't ever make the mistake of thinking that demons are greater than Jesus or that Satan is more powerful than God. And don't fall into the trap of treating Satan as if he were some sort of a junior God with almost but not quite divine powers. That's absolutely not true. Satan is a created being who can do nothing without God's permission. And in this story, we see that Jesus has absolute power over what the demons do and where they can go. This actual miracle itself happens quickly. At the command of Jesus, the demons leave the man. He regains his sanity. The demons enter the pigs, and the pigs rush down the steep bank to the water where they drown. Now, we come to several perplexing questions here. Why did the demons ask to be sent into the pigs? Well, again, the text doesn't answer explicitly, but there's some possibilities. One is so they wouldn't be sent to the abyss. Two, so they'd have a bodily home for their evil activity. Three, because they wanted to destroy the pigs. Or four, because they knew that destroying the pigs would stir up trouble for Jesus. If they can't inhabit a man, they will inhabit a group of pigs. Remember that demons are bent on trouble and destruction. The greater question is probably why Jesus actually agreed to this plan. After all, doesn't this involve destruction of someone's personal property? Well, presumably the answer is yes, but why the demons into the pigs? Why not just send them into the abyss? Again, the text doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know, but this much is clear. The point of the story is not to destroy the demons, but to deliver the demonized man from their power. The pigs are purely secondary. Jesus manifests his authority precisely where the demons manifest theirs in the life of this poor, tormented man. We can also say that by sending the demons into the pigs, Jesus can provide proof positive that the demons had left the man. When the townspeople saw the pig carcasses floating in the lake and when they saw the man clothed in his right mind, nobody could deny what had happened. Beyond that, the story is a lesson in relative values. He who is the master of nature is also its ultimate owner. These pigs belonged to Jesus because he created them. By his actions, he was saying... That one man is worth far more than 2,000 pigs. Well, let's go to prayer number three, which is leave us alone. The miracle is over. The demons have left the man. The pigs are floating in the water and the demons are nowhere to be found. Now, one time I preached this sermon a long time ago. A couple of people come up afterwards and ask me what happened to the demons after the pigs died. Well, my answer is we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. I mean, Jesus has been proved the absolute master of the spirit world. Even the most powerful demons must do his bidding. Almost immediately, word begins to spread, and uh, with this remarkable goings-on with this former madman and the floating herd of, well, what should we call it, deviled ham. But surprisingly or not, depending on your perspective, this miracle was not greeted with approval. Verses 14 to 17. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs as well and then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region the end of verse 17 is one of the saddest sentences in the entire bible i mean jesus came to bring life but the people chose death he came to bring freedom he came to bring light but they preferred to live in bondage and work in darkness now you'd think they'd be grateful that this dangerous guy had been healed or cured, fully clothed and was delivered by Jesus, but not so. As the word spreads, a great crowd gathers, amazed by what they've seen. Get a brand new madman is a new man. He sits at Jesus' feet, calm, clothed in his right mind. The guy they thought called crazy was perfectly normal. I mean the man who once had a legion of demons now sits at the feet of Jesus. But the response of these people can be told in three words. They were afraid. I mean, change bothers people, even change for the better. This explains why dysfunctional families often stay as they are, and it's why some people stay in destructive relationships year after year. At least we know what to expect, they say. But When people looked at the man, there was no doubt that a miracle had occurred. Evidently, the pigs mattered more than the man. But to Jesus, the man mattered more than the pigs. They couldn't handle the transformation, and instead of rejoicing, they were afraid. Of what? The man? Possibly. Of Jesus? Definitely. They're afraid of anyone with that kind of power. What's he going to do next? Well, C.S. Lewis once remarked that Jesus is not safe, but he is good. He does not always do what we expect, but what he does is always for the best. Now, there are many parents who weep for their children when they're on drugs or alcohol or living in sexual sin, but those same parents get angry when their kids come to Jesus and their lives are radically changed. Perse- have some of you have experienced that. You were so far gone in sin and your friend's family despaired for you, but now that you found Jesus, those same people are bothered by the change in your life. I mean, some people can't even handle that at all. Sometimes they want you to leave because they don't have a place in their lives for a truly changed person. Dysfunction they could somehow live with, but redemption by Jesus is too much. <clears throat> Fear, ignorance, and selfishness combined in the request that Jesus leaves their area, and he does. He does not stay where he's not wanted, and as far as we know, he never went back there again. And that's something to think about. When Jesus knocks on the door of your heart, run quickly to let him in. Don't think that he's obliged to come back again and again and again. The townspeople didn't like it when Jesus disturbed the status quo. Weighing the evidence, they concluded the healing cost too much. Would you please leave? We'd rather have a few crazies around here than have our property destroyed. Now, it's easy to make them look bad, but we might have done the same thing. Many people are open to Jesus as long as he keeps his distance. But when he gets too close, they get uncomfortable. They like the gentle Jesus uh, of the picture books, but not the powerful Jesus of the Gospels. They they like a statue Jesus so they can touch it for good luck, but uh, they recoil from one who demands total allegiance. Now, some people are against Christianity because Christianity threatens their business or their lifestyles or their habits or their personal morality. They're against Christianity because, well, Christianity is against them. All of us are apt to ask Jesus to depart when he comes too close and crimps our plans. We want a gentle Jesus who will keep his nose out of our business and will take us to heaven, but won't interfere in the way we live on this earth. We want a Jesus who builds our self-esteem and makes us happy, but we want nothing to do with the Lord from heaven who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. More than a few people today have heard the gospel and then say, if Jesus comes in, something else will have to go, and I'm not sure I want to let go of that. The people who come to investigate the miracle asked Jesus to leave because he was bad for business, and they were right. When Jesus comes into your life, it will never be business as usual. Before his conversion, St. Augustine said that he sometimes prayed, Save me, O Lord, save me, but not now. Well, here's prayer number four. Let me go with you. We get to the end of the story in verses 18 to 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been the demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, he said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now think for a moment about the various prayers in this passage. He granted the request of the demons. He sent them into the pigs. He granted the request of the people. He went away. He refused the request of the new convert. He did not allow the man to come with him. Now, here's something for you to consider today, friends. Answered prayer is not always a blessing, and an unanswered prayer is not always a burden. In this case, it was better for the man to stay among his own people. They needed him, and he needed to be there. And no doubt his request was sincere. He may have feared, if you leave, I'll fall back into the old way of life again. But he didn't understand that the best defense against renewed satanic attack was to occupy his mind with the great things God had done for him. Nothing would steady him in his new life like continuing to tell the story of his deliverance. Now, a lot of kids like to play show and tell. I remember it from my grade school days. And Jesus basically tells this guy to go and tell. Go to the people you know best. Tell the things you know best, what God has done for you. Jesus did that kind of thing by leaving him behind. He'd be a living reminder of God's power. And this is really where all missionary outreach begins. Start where you are. Tell what you know. Jesus found a demoniac and left him behind, a missionary. So go and tell. Tell what Jesus has said to do. Anyone can do that. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do that. You don't have to learn a lot of verses or memorize a complicated outline. You don't have to be a good speaker or have a winsome personality. You don't have to get permission from anyone to tell your story. You don't have to write a book or a sermon. You don't need a big audience. Start with one person. That leads me to a simple question. What has Jesus ever done for you? Has, he, has the Lord ever touched your life and changed you? Or have you been a bystander while others came to Jesus? Can you tell anyone what Jesus has done for you? Well, maybe if you can't, it's because your life has never been changed. Perhaps you need to come to a definite moment of personal commitment. If you've never come to Jesus personally, friends, I urge you to pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need you in my life. I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead on the third day. With all my heart, I trust you as my Lord and Savior. Come into my life and save me. Now, friends, prayer isn't magic and those words aren't a formula to get you to heaven. But if you truly desire to know Jesus, come to him with all of your heart and he will save you right now. But more than anything, this passage kind of helps answer the question, where does God want me? The answer is he wants you right where you are. And if he wants you somewhere else, he can move you anytime. I mean, what if you were the only Christian in the shop or the office or the factory, the store, the club, the classroom, your family, your neighborhood? Well, all the better. God has put you there as a missionary. And all the people around you are your mission field. The challenge is the same for you as it was for the man in this story. Go and tell what great things the Lord has done for you. Everyone is either a missionary or a mission field? Which one are you? Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.